and we are go. Hello, ladies and gentlemen. This is the Virginia Company Podcast with your host, John Smith. And as always, thank you for tuning in, watching, uh, or listening in this case, to me and my wild ravings of an old man. This week, we start with uh, the cigar of the week, as we always do. Except for last week, because it was the sickly, uh, wild, random podcast. And of course, while I did reveal some deeper truth about life, no one appreciated it. But unfortunately, that is my reality. <laughs> but I'm glad. I'm glad that the five of you that took your time to listen and uh, hear my dulcet tones consistently preach truth. Um, or, you know, my wild ravings regularly. And uh, the Cigar of the Week this week, to make that awkward transition all the better, is... A Macanudo Inspirata. Um, it is a darker cigar. It's not really what I'm used to from the Macanudo series. Most of them are, you know, well, let, let me describe the cigar. So it's a darker uh, cigar. It's longer and larger than, say, my Nub. It's about a 60 ring gauge. Um, it's, I believe, a Bellicoso in size. And it's different than what I'm used to because it has. Uh, a much darker wrapper, a little bit stronger um, as far as flavor goes, and it's not sweet. It's not aromatic the same way um, other cigars are. The main things I noticed about the cigars, A, it had excellent draw, um, good construction, it burned evenly, um, you know, of course that might help that I lit it with matches and not my normal torch. I noticed that when I light things with my torch, I tend to just destroy it uh, utterly and leave no prisoners, but... As far as the Macanudo went, I was fairly, uh, fairly gentle with the, with the girl and did it with matches rather than my torch, which lends itself to a more even burn and a more gentle approach, um, which I'm sure she appreciated. Now the scar itself's flavor, you got a lot of fruit. Um, if you've ever had, what's a good example? If you've ever had something like prunes or grapes or um, anything, any red fruit, you, you'd get that from this. It, it has really, like the first flavor is kind of a strong prune uh, and the aftertaste is more like grapes. And it's consistent throughout the entirety of the cigar. I smoked two thirds of it and then um, had to put it down because of family events, which by the way, got to see uh, my family and, and that was excellent having dinner together with them. Um, for <clears throat> mom and dad, uh, had to leave for different things, but in any case, uh, and they of course judged me harshly for the cigar, <laughs> for the cigar smell. That is one of the things that bothers me about cigars actually, is the fact that in spite of their great flavor and, and how fun it is to do it with the guys, um, you do smell, the smell does stick to you, uh, rather heavily. Now there's some smells, you know, I personally don't mind the smell of a cigar, but, uh, lots of people find it, uh, you know, lots of people who don't smoke them find it annoying. Though pipe smoke is completely different. Pipe smoke, uh, generally speaking, is a little bit easier on the body. It's a little bit more aromatic. It's a little less punchy than a cigar. Like, even the most aromatic cigar has a lot more punch than a pipe. And uh, on another note, something else that has a lot more punch than its counterpart, my recently, uh, I have a problem. See, I love candles. I enjoy lighting them. And... Uh, I left one on and it, it almost burnt down my desk. So what I got was this new thing uh, called a Woodwick Wax Melt. And the flavor is Humidor, a medley of aged tobacco leaves and leather and ambered musk. 
for use in mouth warmers. And I thought it was so stupid at first um, when I poked it up and heard about it, but it's really doing well. My entire room smells like a sweet humidor. It smells like that rich tobacco smell, and I wouldn't have it any other way. Though I do like Chris Paul, apple, and cinnamon, and the various flavors that come along with it, the, the smell of the humidor is, um, is ideal. Currently, this is another thing, I got a new humidor from Total Wine, and it was excellent. I believe I brought it up last week, but it's been doing a great job this week. I mean, it always keeps it between my humidity, between 65 and 70 degrees, um, and my cigars inside filled with, as you know, the nub single roast and nub double roast, and uh, a sweeter, a sweeter brand of cigar um, that I'm adding tonight, though I don't think I'll put any more in my humidor until I've smoked through these. Uh, I will add another pack, though, to keep it moist and wet on the inside and keep temperatures re- relatively good. I live in Virginia, and it's already kind of a wet state, um, but temperature does get rather cold in the winter, though nothing compared to the north. Um, so it's not perfect for a humidor, but this is sufficient for my needs right now, and I'm just immensely proud of having it on my desk. I don't even, I don't think I've actually taken a cigar out of here and smoked it yet, but on that day, rest assured I'll let you know. <laughs> um... But back back to the Macanudo. You know, the Macanudo, uh, generally speaking, it's a great brand. It's tends to be lighter, more aromatic flavors, uh, much less dark or medium body stuff. So <clears throat> this is the me- most medium body or dark cigar I've had from them. Because um, as you know, the Royal Crown is, tends to be my, my choice. Um, however, this wasn't the White Series, and it sticks out from the White Series, but it wasn't wasn't horrible. If you like red fruit, floral notes, um, you would definitely enjoy the cigar. Be warned that while it burns, the smoke while aromatic, uh, the taste is a little more subtle and uh, the aftertaste is really where it comes in and earns its own um, with the red fruit. So that that's pretty much my review. Uh, the review itself was two minutes. The rest was ranting about my humidor and cigars. But I, it always gets me excited. Every time I go, every time I visit the shop, every time I see the guys, you know, it just, it warms my heart. Um, speaking of the guys in the community there, I met with a friend of mine. Uh, and this is how powerful the cigar is. It, it brought a community around this dude. He was 54 years old. I'm not going to reveal his name, but he, he was a staple of the shop. And he was always grumpy. You know, he's always a grumpier dude. And he, uh, I think we had two interactions and the f- uh, both of them were angry where he was telling me to get my big butt out of the way while he went to go look at a cigar. But, um, he passed away recently and it's weird. It's like, it's like when I went in, I noticed he was absent and I noticed, um, and it was, it was sad. I was, I was genuinely aggrieved for this guy who was mean to me the two times I met him, but he was there so often and always had such presence that it's almost like a staple or, or a piece of decor is gone, like a, like a painting or a character from a book. It's just missing, and um, we just need to be in prayer for his family, and, you know, they're making... I heard some guys actually at the shop making preparations for his death and going to the funeral, and so just keep him in your prayers and keep the family in your prayers, um, and it's just a tragedy. It's a tragedy whenever you go someplace and are used to someone being there and even if you don't know them intimately them not being there one day it just is a humble reminder that we're all mortal and everyone can suffer you know through these things through loss and no one here is forever is here forever no matter how permanent a structure they might be um, 
but to get off that negative topic, we'll, we'll go and move on uh, <laughs> to the next topic. So give me one moment and, you know, we'll see where this goes. Stay tuned. Thank you for enduring that transition. And by the way, thank you so much for still sticking with me. Um, I don't care how many people really listen to this, though it always depresses me thoroughly when I see it in the single view count. Um, I, I don't think I mind, though. I don't think I mind that it's a low amount that much. I, I think that that's actually valuable because it shows that at least five people are taking time to listen to some of what I have to say. And no one is entitled or I'm not entitled to have anyone listen to me at all. So this is a uh, rather excellent, this is a rather excellent turn of events. Now this week I've just been utterly uh, busy. You know, last week I was sick and the weekend we had a, uh, a revival at church. It went crazy. Um, we had IHOP afterwards, so that was great because half of the fun of church is eating. Um, if you guys didn't know, that's what we do. Um, Christians, and I'm sure it's the same in a lot of religious communities, but Christians specifically, especially if you're from a, like a southern denomination, oh, eating, you, you better believe that it is a, a major part. And so um, I, I was rather happy with getting to go to IHOP and uh, indulge <clears throat> with some of the other young men of the church. And it got me thinking about, you know, why, um, why is there such a division between men and God, specifically the, the sex, the male sex and God, um, the male gender and God. And I got to thinking, you know, theorizing about why some of the reasons why men are less likely to embrace religion than their female counterparts. And I came to this conclusion. I, I believe that it comes from a few key differences in the sexes. And I think it comes to our biology and psychology as groups <clears throat> in our human evolution. And the biggest which is a sense of comfort and dependence. I think generally men are less likely to accept help, especially from other men. Um, I think men are very much conditioned to try and be independent, self-sufficient, and uh, even a bit, a bit, a little bit proud that if a man doesn't have pride, he's somehow defeated, that he somehow has lost his way, that he has no value. And Christianity certainly promotes humility, the opposite of pride. And it also lets you know from the very outset that you are to be fully dependent on God. Um, and, and that cannot change. But what always interests me about Christianity is, on the face of it, it seems like a very emasculine religion. I mean, it, it calls for you to let go of your material possessions and to submit and be a servant and a slave. And... Um, on, on the surface of it, it seems like such an emasculine way to go about life. I mean, there's no domination. There's no, you know, conquest to be promised. There's simply submission and worship to a being greater than yourself and dependence on him. I mean, you're a sheep. He's your shepherd. And no man wants to admit that he's as dumb and helpless as a sheep. And um, that's not saying women think they're dumb or helpless. It's just that men are more conditioned to try and be self-sufficient in our society and less likely to uh, even accept help let alone accept that they are unable to take care of themselves in any capacity. And 
it got me thinking, you know, why is it men are so separated from God? Inherently, I feel like women, especially in like Pentecostal or charismatic denominations, are much more active because men are feeling are totally intimidated. They feel intimidated and like they're unable to approach the altar. They're unable to approach God. They're unable to approach um, religion seriously because to approach religion seriously would have to be to acknowledge that you have limits, that you must be dependent, that you don't have all the answers and everything is not within your control. I feel like men are more comfortable acknowledging things aren't in their control in the absence of a deity rather than having a concerted will enforce itself or have influence over their lives. Men would rather have no influence, random chaos, than have the influence of another over them. Such is their desire for independence. The difference between men and uh, and women when it comes to religion would probably be that women do not suffer from the same excesses of pride and vanity in character that men do. Generally speaking, men have such a pride in what they can do for themselves and for others. And Christianity specifically focuses on what Christ did for you. And it puts a man in an awkward position because he can never pay it back. And if he rejects it, well, then so be it. But at least he's choosing that on his own, independent, or so he thinks. And it's just such a strange thing. It's such a strange phenomenon that while male leadership is encouraged and, and male preachers and pastors dominate, it is always women filling in the gaps. It is always women evangelizing. It is always women inviting their husbands to church. It is always women... Uh, moving the church forward and prophesying and volunteering and teaching children. And my question is, where are the men? Where are the men? And not that there aren't men at my church. It's just that, generally speaking, I notice men are less active and less intimately involved with church things than women. Men are less likely to acknowledge something's going on or to ask for prayer. Men are less likely to step up to the plate when it comes to volunteer work, they would rather, or if they do step up, it's always in a doing a work aspect. It's always, oh, well, I'll build this for you. I'll roast or be on the uh, grill. I'll protect, right? They always want to be in the most masculine role they can be in. Very rarely will a man volunteer to pray for another man unless he is a, in a leadership position. And therein lies the problem. You see, when you're a Christian and you're a man, We're all in leadership positions. As a Christian, you are representative of a greater truth, a greater whole. And so you have authority given to you by God in the Great Commission to go and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. And so... Men tend to neglect the big one of the biggest parts of the Great Commission. They'll get baptized. Right? Anyone can get baptized. What they neglect is the discipleship part. They neglect going forth and making others disciples. 
it's uncomfortable. A, because you have to do it on behalf of someone else, but more than that, B, it requires that you yourself submit to a greater authority, to a greater calling, to something that requires service, slavish service. Promotion in the church means going lower on the rung in the world. To be a pastor means to be the biggest servant, the greatest servant. Not the greatest as in the most powerful, the highest, the mightiest, the most authoritative. Though authority does come with the role of being pastor, but it is to spread yourself out and be vulnerable before everyone at all times. Never lying, always being honest, rarely ever being allowed to assert pride and will. People think that's weakness, but for a man to give up his ego and to serve others shamelessly requires great strength of will. Strength that I admit often I don't have. I remember the first time I ever had to attend a church service. I felt so awkward because I felt like this is no place for men. This is no place for a man. And as I got older, I questioned it more and more. It felt like men who were really involved with church had to be servants and slaves. And that didn't seem particularly appealing to a young man, especially a young man who loves history and politics and and knows that, you know, leaders have servants. Men of power and fame and status have servants. They aren't servants. Rarely ever does it work out for the slave or the servant. But here we have Christ, the greatest of all men, who himself was a slave and a servant. But men are uncomfortable with that. See, we're, we're, fit, we're stuck in this divide because we have a worldly perspective on what it means to be a leader, on what it means to be a man, and we have a spiritual idea of what it is to be a leader and what it is to be a man. The worldly leadership comes with many, many benefits. It comes with wealth and glory and power and women and, and, and access to resources and influence, such influence, influence on the physical world around you in that when you want something, you can take it. When someone hears your voice, they listen and obey. That type of authority. But Christ's authority is the exact opposite. Christ's authority is not taking your environment and bringing it to Christ. It is bringing Christ to your environment. There's a distinction there. Christ-like authority and worldly authority are different because instead of having servants, you are a servant. Instead of Making the world do as you wish, you bring your wish to the world. Your wish is to see other men saved and to serve them, not to see other men serve you in the hope of being saved. And that's the difference. That's the difference between true Christianity, true religion, what makes a godly man a godly man. It is the denial of the arrogance and pride that comes naturally to oneself, especially the desire to have others submit to you rather than you submitting to the needs of others. But in a sense, that's what being a man has always been about. Men have been doing this for their families for thousands of years. We have been always on the move, always on the lookout to submit our needs and our trials and our desires second to the needs and desires and trials of our family. A man had to be strong and self-sufficient A man cannot submit to the world. He resists it. 
See, a man, in spite of living in the world, his attitude towards the world is confrontational. But a man's attitude to God has to be submissive and docile, at least to his master. When a man lives in the world and resists it and is privy to its whims, he's in confrontation with it and resisting it. So when a man turns to God, suddenly his, he doesn't know how to serve. Because so far his service in the world has been resisting it and not letting it get the better of him. But now, the call is the exact opposite. To allow Christ to have the best of you. What an interesting conundrum. What a thought. That man's heart is totally bent on resisting or influencing his environment. But now we have something something that instead lives in us and twists us. I think that existential discomfort, the idea that man has been so used to building walls, to turning on lights when it's dark, to having the world around him be his expression rather than looking inside for an expression of the Holy Spirit, I think that's why men are uncomfortable with God. Because God is not some environmental problem that can be overcome with a clever invention. God is not a political order that can be removed with violence. Nor is he a, an idea that can be stomped out silently. God is not some sort of rebellious state or vassal. He's not a slave. No. God is an immutable, all-powerful reality. That if a man is honest with himself and confronts, he can either really be left with two things. Enslavement to the environment around him or enslavement to the God that lives within him. You can be pressed along by the world or be pressed along by God. But you cannot be both. A man who chooses to serve himself, his love, his flesh, his desires that way, he's still enslaved. He's enslaved to the external fruits of a corrupt, vile world. He cannot produce anything on his own, so he takes from what is around him. But a man with God living in him, he produces streams of living water and makes fruit in everywhere he goes. Not physical fruit, mind you. He, he doesn't have possessions and values, necessarily. He's not wealthy, because God has just made him wealthy. He's not particularly handsome or charming. He doesn't have a perfect body, or indeed the wisest of minds. But he does have a spirit. He does produce fruit. He does have the righteous fruit of integrity, of honor, of obedience and submission, of love eternal, and patience, incalculable, long-suffering and endurance greater than even the greatest wrestlers or athletes. The ability to go through life's most harsh and bitter trials and it not affect him too greatly. For while he might feel pain or rejection, or even the need to give up, he does not, because he has the comfort of a greater stream inside of him. So that should all the streams in the world, should all the clean water in the world disappear tomorrow, he would still have a stream of living water sustaining his spirit. It's interesting. It's interesting that some men go to a well to take water for themselves. And that's true. But Christ tells each of us to be a stream in our own right.
it's such a difference. It's so opposite of everything, the way things should work. It's so opposite of the way that you've been taught, that I've been taught, to think about religion. You see, a lot of men take religion like this. They, they think that they can plug in X and get Y. <clears throat> that it's a mathematical equation. That if I do these things in this order, in this way, then hopefully, you know, God will be pleased with me and I won't suffer. Or at least, I won't suffer too much. But that type of calculation isn't applicable to God. That's another thing that probably makes men uncomfortable. It makes men uncomfortable because unlike a problem in the real world, which can be calculated and prepared for, God isn't predictable. At least, not in a mathematical sense. God's nature and fundamental immutable traits are eternal, but how he operates within our realm isn't within our control. It's better that way, by far. If we could control the whims of God, well, then we would be God. And I think that's one of the problems men have, is we wish from the very beginning we wished to be like God. We wish to have his wisdom, his power, his control, and his final say in authority. The final say in what's right and what's wrong. The final say in who should drink and who should starve. Who should be merry and who should be miserable. We wanted that choice. We've always wanted it. In the darkest, most miserable moments of our lives, we've wanted that. On the greatest, most positive days, we've wanted that. We've longed for it. And it's been our bane. It's helped us certainly a lot survive in this corrupt world by adopting corrupt principles. But will it last in the next? There's an old verse that talks about the workings of this world being consumed in fire, like hay, like straw. Are your works on earth going to be consumed in fire? Are they going to last? The lessons you've learned and the things you've applied in this world, how suitable will they be in the next? I don't know. Even I don't know. I'm pondering here. I'm not trying to preach to you guys, though it might sound like that. But I genuinely am concerned about these types of things. I mean, on self-reflection, all the reasons I have problems with religion. All the things that bother me. And maybe I'm just projecting that onto the rest of mankind. Maybe the rest of mankind doesn't have these, these crises. But I genuinely, genuinely believe that there's something universal about these problems. It's funny, you have the head knowledge, you know how the Christian is supposed to react, but you don't know how a man is to react. Because a man is almost seemingly separate from Christianity. It's so alien to him. The gospel is so alien to a man who lives outside of it. Even one who's been raised in it, it is alien to him. It makes so little sense. It makes so little sense to deny oneself when in order to live, you must indulge in things. It makes so little sense to allow... God who lives in you to provide for you rather than to try and take from the world around you, outside of you. It makes so little sense to serve rather than to ask someone to serve you. And they're basic fundamentals. 
But I genuinely believe humility doesn't come naturally to a man. Especially a man like me. While we're on the subject of God and religion and such things, I think it's pertinent to note that one of the idols people often put in their lives to replace God tends to be objects, and I'll give you an example from my own life. Recently, I saved up $1,000. Um, to some, that might be nothing, and to others, it might be a whole lot. To me... I think I fall in the latter category. To me, $1,000 was a lot of money. It took me um, more than two months to save up $1,000 in my savings account. And I was very proud that I was finally able to do it. And um, the day of, I once I put my $1,000 and paid my bills, I decided to go treat myself um, and I, lately, I, I think I've expressed before how much I enjoy suits, how much I enjoy dressing well, and how it's giving me new confidence and helping me not only in my job, but at my church and in my day-to-day life. Dressing confidently and fashionably makes me happy. And I went to Joseph A. Banks, um, you know, the retailer, and just wanted to find some good shoes because I have a pair of dress shoes but they're rather old and they're scuffed and they're black and formal and really only go well with certain types of dress they kind of stick out otherwise so I went for a nice pair of leather brown leather shoes and they are amazing I know the manager there he's a really nice guy his name is Bill and he hooked me up with 30% discount because I've been going to him for my proms and weddings, and he remembered me, and, um, I got a $125 pair of shoes for $85, which, again, doesn't seem like a lot to some people, but to me, I saved up good money for those shoes, and, um, I genuinely love them. I've worn them every day to work for the past week, two weeks, and, um, often to church, twice, and unfortunately, tonight, I had just gotten done smoking the cigar, I had just gotten done writing my shortened review, and, um, I went up to eat dinner with my family. When I went up to dinner, I asked for coffee, because I wasn't hungry, um, I got the coffee, and I, when I put it down, I got up to grab something, and I spilt it all over my legs and on my shoes, and it stained. It stained my pants, and it stained my new leather shoes that I had spent that money on and was so proud of, and I was upset, and I was sad, and I started frantically washing off those shoes trying to get them clean. I'm even looking at them now. Here, let me reach for them. 
And you could see, if you were here, you'd be able to see one of them is a little bit darker than the other. One of them has been stained just a bit, in spite of my best efforts to wash. And that is just so unfortunate. But you know what? You know what? It's just a healthy reminder. It's a reminder that objects, my humidor, scratched as it is, my candle, my lamp, my shoes, even my podcast, these things are impermanent. Now I hope this thing grows. I hope maybe we get to have guests or even a co-host on. I hope people enjoy my takes on things. I hope the fact that I have at least two good segments out of a 45-minute podcast or 30 to 45-minute podcast will keep keep people coming back and be consistent. But if it never gets bigger than five people, or if it grows and then shrinks to nothing, I haven't lost much. Just like these shoes. I spent $85, and it meant a lot to me, but... I'm no worse off than before I had them. And I just think someone needs to hear that whatever it is, whatever object you're pursuing, whatever goal you're moving towards, keep doing it. But ask yourself something very important. If you achieve your goal and you get the objective and you lose it, will it make you a worse, in a worse state than you were before? And I don't just mean financially. I mean spiritually. I mean mental health. I mean relationally with your brothers and sisters and with your family and with your friends. That's a hard question. It's a hard question. But you need to be self-reflective. You need to be self-reflective. Because there are things greater than your goals. There are things greater than objects and possessions, than fame or glory. Those things are fleeting. Even God... Even God does not get glory from objects. I was reading the Psalms, and I'm on Psalm uh, 30 or 40, excuse me, Psalm 40. And uh, in verse 5, it says, Lord my God, you have done many things. Your wonderful works and your plans for us, none can compare with you. If I were to report and speak of them, they are more than than can be told. You do not delight in sacrifice and offering. You open my ears to listen. You do not ask for a whole burnt offering or a sin offering. Then I can say, See, I have come. It is written about me in the volume of the scroll. I delight to do your will, my God. Your instruction resides within me. I proclaim righteousness in the great assembly. See, I do not keep my mouth closed, as you know, Lord. I did not hide your righteousness in my heart. 
I spoke about your faithfulness and salvation. I did not conceal your constant love and truth from the great assembly. God, when we're talking about God, when I think of God, I think he's the objective reality from which all things come. God is the great ultimate measurement and means by which we can determine values. He puts everything else into perspective, as it were. He's a standard of measurement. Which is why, by the way, sin means to fall short or to miss the mark. In the great game of you must be this tall to play this game, to ride this ride, none of us are quite tall enough or mighty enough or great enough to reach that standard. It's eternal. It's infinite. And this standard does not value how many likes you get on a Facebook post or hearts you get on Instagram or followers you have on Twitter or retweets. This measurement does not care how wealthy you become, how many Benjamins you have in your bank account. He doesn't care whether or not you are the most successful, powerful man in the world. He doesn't delight in what you can give him because you can't give him anything. He doesn't delight in offerings. What can you offer God? He has everything. No, God, God is only interested in what seems to be intangibles. He delights when a man is loyal to him and obedient, when he listens. And more than just listening and obedience, he tells people about the standard by which he does these things. To proclaim righteousness in the great assembly, see, I do not keep my mouth closed. As you know, Lord. Many people who are religious or claim to have religious views say that's between me and God. It's my private belief. That's true. It is your private belief. But I would like to point out that God didn't ask you to hide righteousness or his instructions or his will. I would like to point out that Jesus Christ, his ultimate act was very public and it was done in an assembly surrounded by even those who did not know him, especially those who did not know him, to generations that did not know him. And you're one of them. The cross, the hair, the beard, the crown of thorns. The shame, the mockery, they did not compare to a single man speaking truth and being obedient. When David wrote this psalm, I see in it embodied a parallel, the attitude of the Christian and the attitude of Christ. God doesn't delight in what man has to give him. He delights in what he can give man. 
God does not delight in man's will. God delights in man obeying his will. God does not delight in private acts of righteousness done without the knowledge or integrity to hold them in public spectation. God does not delight in silent ministers and preachers and apostles. He does not delight in quiet hypocrites. God does not delight in those who will not repeat what he has done for them. Verse 10, I did not hide your righteousness in my heart. I spoke about your faithfulness and salvation. I did not conceal your constant love and truth from the great assembly. The great assembly. Got it. He's got it. David's not afraid of what the world thinks, what his church thinks, what his people think. And here's why. He gives us a reason for his bold confidence. Lord, do not withhold your compassion from me. Your constant love and truth will always guard me. For troubles without number have surrounded me. My sins have overtaken me. I am unable to see. They are more than the hairs of my head, and my courage leaves me. Lord, be pleased to deliver me. Hurry to help me, Lord. And here something else is revealed. God is not pleased with a man's personal righteousness. David didn't deliver himself by being boombastic and proud and haughty about his own righteousness. David was not writing this psalm as a means to tell everyone else around him what a good person he was. Often we Christians fall into the trap of trying to brag about what is best for us, what we have done for others, what we do for our churches. We let our ministries and our service be what defines us and makes us right with God. Or else we hide our righteousness in our hearts. There are two extremes here. Always endeavoring to be honest to those around you and shameless about God. Because remember, it is not your compassion or your honesty or your good deeds, but it's God's compassion. His love is truth. His love and truth. They protect you. When you're surrounded by troubles, when you're overtaken in your own iniquities and failings and shortcomings, it's only then that you can truly give glory to God because you realize how hopeless and dependent you are on Him. You're not asking the assemblies or your sacrifices or your burdens or your problems for deliverance. Rather, you're asking God to deliver you from those things. In verse 4, How happy is the man who has put his trust in the Lord and has not turned to the proud or to those who run after lies. Lord my God, you have done many things, your wonderful works and your plans for us. None can compare with you. If I were to report and speak of them, they are more than can be told. 
There is never a reason to be silent. There is never a lack of material to any discerning man who knows God, who knows his word, who knows what God has done for him and has learned and understands. You will never fall short of topics, of praise, of things you can say that God has done for you. Humans find a way, though. I know I have. I've found ways to be ungrateful to God. I've found ways to put an idol up against him. To make my works, my sacrifices, my service, anything I do, meager as it may be, I've used that as a way of justifying myself in righteousness. I've even made the avoidance of sin, outright sinning, a basis for my own righteousness. But God isn't pleased with that. God isn't pleased simply with my silence or quiet self-righteousness. No, God is pleased with us proclaiming His righteousness in spite of our own shortcomings. Explaining His overwhelming power in spite of our underwhelming weakness. I could go on at length with long pause and continual paragraphs, but I don't think I will. I think I'll just leave you with a summary stating that wherever you are in life, whatever standard you are measuring yourself by, stop. Stop imposing fake standards on yourself. Stop imposing fake standards based on society. Stop imposing idols and sacrifices and offerings and thinking that that's enough. Stop braggadociously claiming about your own works and abilities or keeping what God has done for you quiet because you're too proud to acknowledge that or too ashamed. There's never a reason to ignore the truth. There's never a reason to glance over what God has done for you. There's never a reason to let a pair of shoes or to let uh, volunteering at your local home keep you from acknowledging the ultimate source from where those good things come. If you made it to the end, congratulations, you're a true fan. This week was a little bit more solemn, and I didn't really know what I was going to talk about tonight. Um, I knew I was going to talk probably about something religious or having to do with God. Let me know if you enjoyed it. Um, feel free to contact me on Instagram at Virginia Company Podcast. I'll put out the link in the description. Um, remember, you can find this on Spotify. Apple Podcasts or Anchor, and uh, I hope that regardless of what you thought, um, you know, or what I said, how ridiculous it was, whether you hated it or loved it, you got some entertainment out of it. I think I really want to get a co-host, I really want to have guests on, 
Doug Black was unable to make it this week, um, but we should have him on at some point. We've also got a few other people who wanted to come on, and uh, I'm vetting them. Um, I want this podcast to be relatively clean with very little cursing and um, or no cursing, ideally, and uh, appropriate topics. I don't want anything to be too limiting, obviously, but I would like it to be respectful and uh, worthy of putting out. Especially when I'm talking about things like God, um, alongside my other rants and ravings. I feel as though I should tell you how lucky I feel to be able to speak my thoughts out into this void and uh, know that at least for a while some people are listening. If you're out there and you have a business or another podcast or stream or you're a local in Virginia and you have something interesting to add, I would love to have you on. It's just me um, recording what I think as it happens. I would love to have a conversation and hopefully those episodes will be longer and I'll let everyone know when it comes through. Um, I should also mention these guys called the Stonewall Boneheads, who I guess are doing a series of streams. Um, they're good friends of mine. I don't know exactly what content they're doing, but I heard that they're hilarious. And, uh, you know, I, I've met them and talked with them in real life, and they're pretty cool guys. So you might want to check them out. I think they're also on Instagram. Um, I believe one is JoJo, and the other is Davey. So feel free to check them out. Also, if you get the chance, uh, like me on Instagram. Again, shameless shill, but Virginia Company Podcast. I I am a lot more cognizant writing than I am speaking most of the time, and I have more time to think and and put out my thoughts. Though I have a whole week to do each podcast, I tend to focus more on subject material, and most of it's off the cuff, um, my own private rantings, and so forth. And I hope some of you find entertainment in that. Feel free to go ahead and drop in with me next week. I should be releasing it every Tuesday um, or around about then. And uh, thank you again just so much for your patronage. Thank you for listening to me. Thank you for coming out and being a part. And feel free to join the community. Uh, Have a great week. And I'll see you next Tuesday. Goodbye.